Good to see everybody. Good morning. You guys like that little recap video? It's way better than me yammering. <laughs> right? So let's pray and we're done. Donuts? No. <laughs> um, so grateful you're here. I think that um, the odds are, if you've missed some of the conversation we've been in since the beginning of 2019, um, this is kind of a little bit of a recap. We talked about the theme of exile at the beginning. It's kind of been going all the way through, and it's this really big, large theme, right? And it's really hard for us to get a handle on it uh, as Americans living uh, where we live and what we have. Um, we don't have the, uh, the experience that Daniel and the Israelites had of being ripped from their homeland. We don't have that experience. But scripture is really clear that it talks about, <laughs> I'm getting... I see you, I see you. We're actually gonna take our offering right now. We're gonna do this. So while I'm talking, offering's happening. Okay, so being ripped from our homeland, we don't have that experience. Um, we actually have a different kind of weird experience of going, okay, to follow the kingdom, to follow Jesus actually puts us in exile. I mean, one of the things we've been arguing is is that to follow Jesus actually is to experience living in a foreign land, living in a foreign world. And Jesus tells us this in John 17, um, the beautiful passages of John 15 through John 17, Jesus kind of talks a little bit more about this. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but to be a foreigner, to be a sojourner, to to live as a follower of Jesus, to live out our allegiance to Jesus actually means that we're practicing this different way of living against the grain of the culture we live in. And um, this is a very difficult thing. And for some of us who have grown up, depending on your, uh, your age, um, if you grew up going to church, following Jesus, this has changed over the last number of years. And we've been having these conversations, and I gotta be honest, the last couple of months, these conversations, they haven't been easy. And I've talked to some of you in the older generation, and there's been a little bit of, uh, it's been difficult. You've, you've had to kind of rethink kind of the ways that you used to approach your faith, uh, where Sunday, everything used to shut down and everybody went to church and um, you could still pray in school and, and all these different things that you were used to when it comes to following Jesus in our culture have changed. And some of you who are in the younger generation, that's just normal now. And so it's been interesting, the conversation we've been having is we're a very multi-generational church is that for the younger generation, I've talked to a lot of you, and you actually have, because of our conversation, you actually have more compassion on the older generation of followers of Jesus because you've seen kind of the, the, the shift in culture as we've talked about it. And some of you in the older generation have had to, as you've been coming to grips with this change, have actually seen our younger generation as the new pioneers of how to follow Jesus now. It's just been really beautiful. And I just got to say, it's just been a lot of fun and, and, and difficult. And, and all I want to tell you is it's been hard. It's been a hard series. It's been hard things that have had to, been, to have been said up here and, and as we've wrestled with. But I want to tell you, there's a lot of hope. 
There's a lot of hope for followers of Jesus going forward. In fact, I think it's just a great time to follow Jesus because it is going to take creativity. It is going to take um, us as a community banding together and trying to figure out what it looks like to do this well in the months and years ahead. And so I just wanted to recap a couple of things just to remind us of the shifts that are happening. We talked about this maybe eight weeks ago, but there's a, a author and pastor named John Tyson who talks about three big cultural shifts that have happened in our world. And, and this, this is kind of like what it looks like to be Christian in a post-Christian world. Um, it used to be that the world we lived in was Christianized, meaning everything kind of had a flavor of Christianity to it, or Christianity wasn't that far away from things. But now we've gone to, uh, from a majority to a minority, meaning to follow Jesus isn't a majority thing anymore. It's more of a minority thing anymore. And we had, you remember that day when I totally embarrassed myself and I talked about the nuns? And you thought I was talking about like Catholic nuns, but really I was talking about the spiritual nuns, meaning people who say I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, there's actually, uh, when you fill out questionnaires now, it means, you know, what's your religious affiliation? None, not Catholic nun. Clear? Clear. Um, second, the second shift from in our culture is from the center to the fringe, meaning um, in academics, in, in all these different sectors of society, it used to be that the Christian voice had um, the, um, the ear of those, of those places. So academia and politics and business and culture and art and all those things. Now we're more on the fringe of Society, not necessarily in the public square. And the third one is this, from well-respected to disrespected. And, and some of this has come at our own doing when it comes to um, uh, the ways that uh, Christians and, and maybe even pastors and all these different have acted and done their thing. Um, but it used to be, and I told the story of my friend who has been a pastor for many, many years, and he used to have a pastor discount card there's no such thing as that anymore, trust me. And, um, and in small towns, he could just, you know, flash his pastor discount card, and that's not going to happen anymore. Um, and then we talked about these, these ways to, these postures we, we need to avoid, okay, as followers of Jesus in this time. We talked about this idea of separation, meaning to kind of hold yourself off into a uh, a kind of a cloistered community on the defensive all the time, uh, meaning um, everything, uh, you, you, you take in everything that is Christian, you have a Christian mechanic, a Christian dentist, a, a Christian radio station, everything that in your life is Christian um, and you're separated off from the, the big bad world. That's a posture we want to avoid. The other posture we want to avoid, which is probably what most of us struggle with, is the posture of syncretism, which is, man, there's really, when you really look at my life, when you really look at my heart, when you really look at my affections and my longings and my dreams, and I'm no different than anybody else. 
I'm no different than, than um, anybody in our society. I have the same um, beliefs and thinkings, and, and I just go to church, you know, once or twice a month. And so that's syncretism. And we talked about hard power. We talked about soft power. Hard power is more of like a, a you know, a militaristic state or a religious fundamentalism. Um, soft power is Denver, right? It, it's, do you want another craft beer? Do you, you, you know, I mean, do you want to, do you want to hit another brunch spot on Sunday? I mean, it, it's a soft power. It's a soft kind of like, hey, if it feels good, do it. Um, it's a pretty chill place. Um, you're the master of your own world. Um, that's just the soft power of the world we live in. We've actually been arguing, actually the last 12 weeks or so, 11 weeks, that there's actually a third way. And it's something called becoming a creative minority. And um, this is this idea that it's gonna take a different way to engage. As followers of Jesus, rooted into the kingdom of God, what does it look like for us to live with a foot in both worlds? The kingdom of God and what God has for us, and yet still interacting and still um, having influence in the world we live in. And this same uh, author, John Tyson, gives us kind of an idea of this um, in a definition, he says, a Christian community, this is a creative minority, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons, in a complex and challenging cultural setting, who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And this is really, really a powerful uh, definition, this idea of a stubbornly loyal group of people that were knotted together. Like we're going to be stubbornly loyal, which is counter kind of our culture, which is like, hey, if, if something's uncomfortable, I'm just going to go bounce and try something else somewhere else, right? And uh, we see this in the, the church community all the time. Um, and we're knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural moment. And this is a complex and challenging cultural moment, right? Like, what does it look like to follow Jesus in this cultural setting? And we're committed to practicing the way of Jesus, not just believing new things about Jesus, not just learning new Christian things, but actually practicing the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is, there's so much. There's so much on how we present ourselves to this world like Jesus, um, together for the renewal of the world. Actually, this actually has an outcome, and the outcome is the world changes. The world is influenced. And so the problem is, is this is not easy. It's very difficult. And I wish I could give you some little bumper sticker phrases or some really, really catchy jingles for this. Um, there's nothing easy about it. In fact, the letter that accompanied the exiles, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, this letter that accompanied them that arrived to them at some point from Jeremiah was partly their roadmap. It was partly their roadmap on how to live out following God, being true to God in exile. And the letter is an interesting letter because um, well, let me just read some of it here to you. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, it's really important if we get a, 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 a right understanding of what's, what Jeremiah is saying here and what Jeremiah is not saying here. Because it's easy to mis, misinterpret this and misapply this. What I'm not saying is just do what everybody in America does with their life, okay, and, and pray for, um, uh, and just, and just go along your thing, buy a big house in the suburbs, do the whole American dream thing. That's not what, it, well, that's not what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah, Jeremiah is actually saying, you're going to be here for a while, so don't set up a lean-to, okay? Don't set up a, like a little tent and think in a year or two, you're going to be back out of here. He's like, you just need to know you're going to be here for a while. You're not going anywhere. In fact, it goes on. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies uh, to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And, and this is the idea that there's other prophets saying, hey, hang in there, couple years, we're out of here. Jeremiah is saying, no, no, no. You're going to be here for a while. Plan on planting some gardens. Plan on building, building a house. Plan on the fact that your kids are going to grow up and they're going to need to get married and then they're going to have kids. And it, just plan on being here for a while. He's like, don't resist, don't like throw rocks, don't like riot, don't do that stuff. Pray for the city because if it prospers, it actually benefits you. But Jeremiah is not asking the people to adopt Babylonian culture. He's just telling them they're going to be there for a while. And anybody else that tells them otherwise is actually lying. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Verse 12, then you will call on me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This beautiful hope that comes through the prophet Jeremiah right at the beginning of Daniel's time in exile. So Daniel, we believe, patterns his life, his thinking, his thought process out of some of this letter. It gives him uh, something that, to tether to in exile. And the, so for the last number of weeks, we've talked about influence. 
We've talked about compromise. We've talked about calling. We've talked about non-participation in our culture. We've talked about resistance. We've talked about the idea of witness. We've talked about the themes of empire and kingdom and how they're very different. Then we talked about hope last week, like genuine, deep, bone-depth hope. Then that's the backbone for all of this being a creative minority. So the question we gotta ask is this, how for 70 plus years did Daniel and many of the people of God, we're talking Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, we're talking Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, we're talking how did, how did for that long a time, for decades, did they stay faithful in exile, right? How did they stay faithful? How did they not lose their tether to, to the, to the kingdom of God and what God was doing in and amongst them, and yet they're living in a foreign world. So based on Jeremiah's letter, and we just read that to Daniel and his friends, Daniel has this paradigm, and over and over again in the scripture, it says that Daniel turns to prayer. Uh, we talked about the moment that, that, that in, in the scripture where Daniel actually it mentions that he is um, praying three times a day towards Jerusalem, this kind of fixed hour prayer rhythm in his life. Then I stumbled on Daniel chapter nine again. And um, this is 70 years into Daniel's life, 80 years into Daniel's life, 70 years into exile. And it says this out of Daniel nine, verses one through four, it says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So here's the idea. Daniel gets to exile uh, he, he has this letter. He's got the prophets telling him, hey, it's going to be a couple of years. Then he's got this letter from Jeremiah that says, don't believe them, they're liars. You're going to be here for 70 years. And Daniel just begins to just go, okay, this is a long-term thing. This is a long run. And next we see Daniel's response, verse 3. So what does Daniel do? So I turn to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer, in petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This is, we're going to stop right there. This is like, uh, I mean, think about this. Daniel begins with his whole person, with his whole body and mind and soul and spirit, begins to posture himself in a way towards God. He prays. He, he puts on sack, he changes his outfit, he puts ashes on, he fasts, he withholds from food, he's prayer and petition, and he prays to God and he confesses. He confesses. And if you read the prayer, and I want you to go read it um, sometime this week, but he confesses his own sin, he confesses the sin of the people of Israel, it's just this beautiful long prayer. And then let's pick up in verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of pe the people of Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, that's from a few weeks ago, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out. We'll stop right there. This is like a, uh, something hit me reading this. Is there anything to you that seems out of place in this? I mean, at all? For me, what I noticed was when Daniel said the time of the evening sacrifice. Here, Daniel has been in exile, not practicing the evening sacrifice since he was a teenager. They don't practice the evening sacrifice in Babylon. The last time that Jeremiah practiced the evening sacrifice was probably in his teenage years, and now he's in his 80s. Think about that. Decades and decades have gone by. And when he's praying, and he's still in prayer, he, 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 while I was still in prayer, I saw Gabriel from, I saw, I saw this guy in the first vision, right? And he says it was about the time of the evening sacrifice, which makes me believe that the rhythm of Jeremiah's life was such that while he was in exile, he wasn't in exile. While he was in exile, he was putting himself in a position to leave exile and then return in exile. Meaning in his mind, in his body, in his spirit, in his person, he put himself at different times of the day, he, he withdrew from exile. He withdrew from the world and the culture he lived in to commune with God, to pray with God, to be with God, to remember who God is, his covenant for him, his love for him, all those things. And then he would return in exile and be living actually physically blood pumping, breathing in exile as someone who was having influence all around him. There was no evening sacrifice, and yet Jeremiah was so clear to him. And I was talking to Dan earlier, it's this idea, he probably remembered the smell, the, 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 just the festivities of, of what happened around the evening sacrifice. We see this in Jesus's life. Jesus is, uh, he has an agenda, he has a mission, he is in some ways in exile, no longer with the Father, comes to earth. He is God incarnate, gives up everything to become human. He's in exile with us. And Jesus is healing, and Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is comforting, and Jesus is casting out demons, and he's doing all those things. But over and over and over again in the life of Jesus, we see that he withdraws, and then he returns over and over again. Matthew 4, There's, these are not going to be on the screen. It says, when they heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Matthew 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And then it says, in, in numbers of other places, he withdrew he, he snuck off in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
Uh, Jesus went away. He withdrew from the people and went to Tyre and Sidon in Matthew 15. Mark 3, it says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Mark, uh, Luke 9, it says that he, he withdrew uh, apart. Uh, he went to a uh, different place out of town to be by himself. Uh, John 6, it says Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. We have these patterns in Jesus' life. You have the, the, the 40 days in the desert. Um, and you have Jesus uh, sneaking away all the time and his disciples looking for him, praying. You have the, the moment in the garden where Jesus goes into the garden and he's praying and all of the disciples keep falling asleep. But there's this idea that Jesus is always withdrawing, right? And then returning. He's always withdrawing and reminding himself of who he is and why he's there and who God is and what his mission is and all these things, and then he returns. And so there's this idea all throughout Scripture of pulling away and then returning to benefit the people around you. Um, this idea of withdrawal, and there's sort of a definition up here on the screen. It says, a retreat, a distancing from what is known and comfortable an exile, a wilderness, a breach with the surrounding culture, meaning this idea of pulling away from what is normal, pulling out of your normal routine, right? And there's something that happens in that moment. There, we learn this from all sorts of, of, of followers of Jesus all throughout history, from the, from the desert fathers to, to monks to to all throughout uh, the Christian tradition, we learned that there's this, this rhythm of withdrawing, okay, getting distance from the prevailing culture, that and it enables us to examine and recognize where we're at. And I think there's four really, really key things to learn from this. When we withdraw, these are the things that happen to us. First, it helps us to break the narratives of the culture in our lives. We talked about formation uh, last fall and this idea that every single one of us is being formed all the time. You're being formed intentionally or unintentionally. So if you're listening to the news, watching TV, doing your thing, radio, uh, whatever, your, your blogs of choice, whatever, you just wake up in the morning, you take a breath and you are being formed. And what scripture is telling us all the time is that this idea of intentional formation that can happen in our lives is really where God meets us to change the stories that we have adopted in our lives. And we take on these stories all the time. And so withdrawing actually helps us to, to break these false stories that have formed us. And scripture does this with us too. Scripture actually gives us new stories, new narratives to see and to follow. The second thing that happens when we, we withdraw from culture, when we withdraw from uh, the surrounding kind of world is that we get self-reflection into our flaws. Now, this is the real fun part. <laughs> this is that part where you begin to become aware of where you're pretty broken, of where you're pretty off, of where you're pretty messed up, of where your heart is um, longing for things that this world longs for, right? And so this is a time of repentance. This is a time of listening. We see this in the life of Daniel, right? 
where his, his repentance, he's, he's repenting and, and listening and, and, and reflecting. Um, the third thing we see is this idea of converting our life into this idea of abiding. It's conversion into abiding. And we get this word abiding from John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, Jesus is actually giving us a metaphor, giving the disciples a metaphor for what it looks like to follow him. Because he's, he's telling them, I'm about to leave you. I'm about to leave you here on earth. And, and I'm not going to be with you anymore physically. But let me give you a roadmap of what it looks like to follow me. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The word remain is the Greek word meno, it means to abide. Basically, it means to stay at home. And this is 10 times it's mentioned in this passage. Let me go on. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples, my Talmudim, my apprentices. So this idea that 10 times he mentions remain, abide, stay at home in me. This is Jesus's kind of picture of what it looks like to remain in him, to, to walk with him. And then the fourth thing I would say that happens when we withdraw is you and I get to be prepared for mission, meaning there are things that happen when we pull ourselves out of our world, commune with God, hear from God. God changes our perspective on people in our lives God changes our heart for things happening in our world. And then God inserts us back in with a renewed mission, with a different mission, right? And this happens to us all the time. And so the goal is in the withdrawal is to return. And you're, you might be saying to yourself, Ryan, this sounds like separatism, this idea of like hiding out. No, 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 no. This is about re renewing and recapturing God's love for us, God's plan for us, and then returning. And then the return is we get to equip, we get to participate, we get to influence, we get to resist, we get to witness to, and we get to love the people with which God desperately wants to have a relationship with. That's the, that's the idea. The return, the withdrawal, and then the return. It's so that you and I can actually display and live the good life that Jesus has on offer. 
And we see this in Daniel, we see this in Jesus, we see this in, in, in countless ways throughout Scripture, that we are, if we have the proper perspective that we live in exile, that we live following Jesus means we live in exile. And if following Jesus means more than just a ticket to heaven, it actually means to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did, to apprentice Jesus. The question I have for us as I wrap this up, how much intentional time and effort are you and I willing to spend in order to break ourselves free from the story of empire? Like how much actual time and effort are we willing to spend withdrawing, okay? Pushing, pushing away, okay? Pushing away all the stories around us that talk about, you know, consumerism, individualism, hedonism, all these things that are just pressing into our lives. How much intentional time and effort are we, are we willing to make pushing all that stuff away in order, okay, to hear from God, in order to be renewed? Second question I have is this. How have we positioned our lives in community in order to make that a reality? How, have, how intentional are you about the people in this community and getting to know them and talking through this with them and being creative with them in order to make this a reality? Um, there's so much that I wanna say, and we're gonna talk about even more next week when it comes to community. And community, a lot of times we hear that and we go, yeah, it's people that I get along with. It's people that are just like me. Nope, <laughs> it's not. Those are uh, acquaintances, those are friendships, those are, uh, those are different. Uh, community is um, modeled much like the disciples of Jesus. And if you study the disciples of Jesus, it is a ragtag, crazy different group of people from a tax collector to a two, couple of guys that like to fight a lot, to, I mean, Peter, who's always talking, to John, who says that Jesus loved him the most, which whatever that's all about, to, you know what I mean? There's this group of guys that is so different. And then you fast forward into the New Testament, and there's language like whether slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, which was a big deal. And God's calling all of them to be in community together. Brennan Manning has written some amazing things. He, uh, in his book, Abba's Child, wrote this. And I just thought this was really, well, it hit me. So whatever, take it, take it if you want it. He says, our controlled frenzy creates the illusion of a well-ordered existence. We move from crisis to crisis, responding to the urgent and neglecting the essential. We still walk around. We still perform all the gestures and actions identified as human, but we resemble people carried along the mechanical sidewalk of an airport. The fire in our belly dies. We no longer hear the inward music of our belovedness. Brendan Manning is talking about is this idea of withdrawal. 
This idea of withdrawal actually allows us to hear God's voice again, to actually commune with God, to hear how much God loves us, to reorient our lives and our hearts and our bodies and our minds and our, and our wills around different loves and different priorities and then reinserts us back into this world to make a huge difference. This last Wednesday was the beginning of Lent. And for some of us who've kind of grown up in the Protestant tradition, okay, just relax. If some of you are like, listen, Lent's Catholic. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, don't get your Protestant undies in a bunch, okay? Listen, <laughs> Lent has been going on since the early church. In fact, Lent was adopted by the Muslims to become Ramadan. Ramadan is a direct descendant of Lent, and actually they practice it way better than we do. And if that gets your Protestant undies in a bunch, I don't know what will. But the point is, is that Lent is very powerful. And over time, just like anything religious, anything spiritual, it, become, it became twisted. And the beginning of Lent, um, which was, it became uh, Shrivetide, which became, um, anybody heard of Mardi Gras? Okay. Fat Tuesday. Anybody know why they call it Fat Tuesday? Because Lent's the next day. And so you got to jam everything uh, gluttonous and pleasurable into your life leading up to Lent. Why? Because Lent, you're supposed to blah, blah, blah. But here's what Lent was really made for. It really was meant for, and it actually moved to, it, was, it used to start on a Sunday, and uh, Pope, Pope Gregory changed it. Now it's on Wednesday. I don't get into that. Anyhow, I'm getting too far into it. The point is with Lent, and, and many of you um, lean into Lent, um, it's kind of the best way for me to tell you what Lent is, is what Dan shared a couple weeks ago when we started communion. That you and I are all empire-holics, and we need to dry out. And, and we need to withdraw. Why? So that we can return. So we can return as the people of God that God created us to be, people living in allegiance to God and Jesus in a world that is horribly broken and needing Jesus. So for me, I started this last week shutting off all contact with news. And some of you are like, that's easy. <laughs> but it's amazing to me I mean, I could have done things like, you know, no, no you know, sweets or whatever, you know, the traditional Lent thing. But what I started to notice in my life was this appetite for wanting to know what was happening in the world. And an appetite for wanting to see how people talked about the things that were happening in the world. So I did a little experiment. And for one day, I decided I'm not going to read news, and I'm not going to open any news apps. I'm not going to do that. And you know what I found myself doing? Instinctively, like, 
like just almost like muscle memory. I could go, oh, oh, wait, that's a news thing. And then I have to shut it, you know, on my phone, just an app, right? And I began to notice now, like, like my heart, it was like really difficult. Like I wanted to, like it was just part of the routine of my life, just kind of scroll through the news. When, you know, like when you're at the DMV or you're somewhere and you, and you have like five seconds of boredom, right? Because we're not bored anymore because we have these computers in our hands. And just in those boring moments, you just kind of pop open the news or for some of you, maybe it's a game or for some of you, it's whatever, I would pop open news. And I began to look at this rhythm in my life and go, wait a second, what if I withdrew from that? What if I withdrew from that and instead of those moments where I my, my, just had this visceral longing to <laughs> read the news? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> like, what if, like, what if my mind went different places? What if I was able to pray in those moments? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know. Some of you, I know some of you have, have taken some um, time for these next six weeks leading up to Easter to do some real powerful things. I've heard people shutting down their internet and some people doing some really tangible things, not out of some religious obligation, not out of some that God's going to love us more because of it. No. But that you're actually withdrawing that you're withdrawing in this moment, in this season, so that God can do something in you and return you. And so this morning, we're gonna end with just some prayer and some silence. And then I'm gonna let you go. Because I think that there's something here for all of us. And, and maybe for some of you in here, it, it might be uh, you need to carve out something in your life that's more of a retreat, more of a, a day of solitude, more of a, uh, a weekend away, more, more, more like that. Some of you know those places in your life where you just feel like the empire has gotten a hold of you. And there's anxiety and it's building and it's building and it's building. And the satisfaction in your life is going down and down and down and down. And for some of you in here, you've never practiced fasting or prayer with any deeper long-term, you know, chunks. And that's really hard to do. And I would encourage you to do it, but I would encourage you to do it with people. Some of you in here, you know, you know the seasons, you know the rhythm of this, you know the joy and the beauty of withdrawing. And you know that when you return, you feel like God has more to say through you and to you and around you. And some of you just go, man, I want that. Like this version of Christianity that is like show up on Sunday, you know, read your Bible, um, try to be moral. That's not working for you. And it's not working for me either. What does it look like for us to be followers of Jesus in this moment, to apprentice Jesus in this moment by withdrawing and returning? For some of you this week, it might be showing up at the prayer initiative and learning how to pray with people who pray. 
who genuinely love to commune with Jesus in prayer. And, and you, can, you can show up and not, you don't have to pray. You don't have to pray out loud. Just come. Just come and be with them. Come and hear them. Come to hear their heart. May the Spirit meet you in that time this Wednesday. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to just get silent in this room and let you do business with God. Maybe there's some places in your life that you need to break withdraw from. Maybe there's just, you just need to hear God speak over you that you are loved again. And let's, let's just be quiet together. <laughs>